not quite do the whole chapter because I'm reserving the last two verses for a sermon on its own next week. Now to whom he's able to do far more exceedingly abundantly of our own. We'll do that one next week. I'm glad you're looking forward to that. Absolutely. We'll be restating today some things that we saw two weeks ago from Ephesians 2. But where scripture repeats itself, I think we need to repeat it. There's, there's wisdom in Scripture where every word of God is inspired and beneficial, profitable to us. All right? So I, I won't ignore the fact we need to repeat things because Paul repeats them, we'll repeat them. And I have to acknowledge that this chapter is not easy. Uh, Ephesians 3 has felt to me like Ezekiel's river, you know, when you go in and it gets deeper. The more I've worked on this chapter this week, the more, the more deeper and more deep in I've got with it, really. And I still don't feel like I've caught it, but I... I'm praying the Holy Spirit will help us this morning. In fact, let's do that now before we go any further. We acknowledge, Holy Spirit, your inspiration, your authorship of Scripture. Yet some of it isn't so simple to us as some other parts. Yet you give us the breadth of Scripture, the the, the, the rep- repetition of scripture, the use of the same words and phrases elsewhere to help us to unlock it and put it together and understand it. And I pray you'll help us this morning to come to understanding. But more than that, I pray that we might find you feeding us. Your word, Lord, is a light to our feet, a light for our path. Your word is like bread, like food. Your word is like medicine. And some of us need good medicine today and some of us need a good meal today. Come and feed us and teach us and nourish us and heal us through your word. And cleanse us, Lord, too, by your word today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Headline for Ephesians chapter 3 is the mystery revealed. Let's go into it. Using the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I've kind of switched from the New American. It's a, Holman Christian's a little simpler in some of its phraseology. So. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. That is to say in chapters 1 and 2. Yeah. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's the mystery. It's not a mystery now, it's been revealed. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this good news, this gospel, by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Paul writes this from prison. He's in Rome awaiting trial before Nero, but he doesn't consider himself to be the captive of human authorities. He says he's the prisoner of Messiah Jesus. He makes the same statement at the start of chapter 4. In fact, we have a number of epistles Letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon that were written from that prison at that time by Paul. Isn't that remarkable? 
Scripture was written because Paul was in prison. God's done that a number of times with his servants over the years. Luther was shut up in an attic, hidden from those who sought to kill him, and he translated the Bible into German while he was hidden in an attic. John Bunyan, 12 years in Bedford Prison, wrote Grace Abounding and most of Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. So don't, don't think that because someone's in prison, they're no more use. God's used them remarkably. Paul had received an administration of God's grace towards the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus set Paul apart from his very conversion to be a messenger to the Gentiles. And that's why he's in prison. Because eventually the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem had him up on charges and you know, he ends up having to be taken to Rome. Now, let's think about Paul for a moment there. Paul was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a very zealous Jewish man of his time. And yet Jesus appeared to him. He was a persecutor of the first Christians of the church. And yet Jesus appeared to him and appointed him to go to the Gentile world with the good news. Isn't that remarkable? He says, this is, this is an administration of God's grace. He gave me this gift of grace to do this job, yep. to have this commission. The Lord has opened up to Paul by revelation what was not previously understood. Now there are mysteries of, about Jesus, the mystery of his incarnation, the mystery of his redemption. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul writes to, to, to Timothy. But, uh, but here he's talking about the mystery of the people of Messiah. That the people of Messiah would be, yes, believing Jewish people, but also believing Gentile people. Not in two groups, but made together one new man in Christ Jesus. He's already written about it in chapter 1 and 2. He made known to you, to us, the mystery of his will, according to his pleasure, that he planned in Jesus before the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah. Everything. This is cosmic. All things in heaven and things on earth in him. It's no longer a mystery. It's made known. And while Paul may have received it by revelation, actually this is now spreading through the churches. The apostles and prophets serving the churches are declaring this to be the revealed purpose of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now it wasn't altogether unknown in the Old Testament, because if you read through the prophets, you'll find them declaring, the Gentiles will come. Well, they will come in. They will bow down and worship the God of Israel. But it hadn't been seen and understood amongst the Jewish people. They thought everyone was going to convert to be Jewish. But God didn't do it like that. The mystery of Messiah, the purpose that was hidden, is now being boldly declared. We saw it in chapter 2. Um, that we were uncircumcised. We weren't, didn't have the covenant sign. We were outside Messiah. We were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. We were foreigners to the covenants of promise. We were without hope without God in the world. But now, believing Christians are part of the true circumcision of the heart. They're included in Messiah. They've become citizens of the Israel of God. And they're equal with believing Jews in the covenants and promises. They are co-heirs. That's the mystery that's now revealed. Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles, are made one new man in him. Equal partners in his new covenant. One of the commentators says, This truth that the Gentiles are equal heirs with Jews of the same inheritance was hidden from former generations, but now has been revealed to the apostles and prophets. And so here's the headlines from what we've looked at in Hebrews 3 here. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. 
heirs of the covenants, heirs of Abraham, heirs of God. And in the New Testament, what a lot of people do when they try to kind of explain these things is they say, but there's a spiritual people, the church, and there's a natural people, that's Israel. It's not fact, it's not there. Those words are not there. In any of the scriptures in the New Testament that speak of these things, those, that definition is simply not made. The only differentiation is in, 1 Corinthians, is, is in Romans 11, where it says that the, 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 the olive tree, which is Israel, or Messiah, and really that's the same thing, natural branches, the natural offspring of Abraham, were broken off through unbelief. And wild branches were put in. It doesn't say natural and spiritual. It says natural and wild. So it's an agricultural illustration. But the natural branches which are broken off because of what? Unbelief can be grafted back in when they come to what? To faith. To faith in Jesus. We are fellow members of the same body. One new man in Messiah Jesus. One community. One flock with one shepherd. Jesus said that himself. There will be one flock with one shepherd. One family with one father. And we kept, come back to that in Ephesians 4 in a week or two. Let me say this again very plainly. Gentile believers in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, have joined the Israel of God. His chosen people. By the way, Stephen in Acts 7 calls Israel in the wilderness the church in the wilderness. Church wasn't invented by Jesus. But it was stepped up into a whole new phase through Jesus. We are fellow partners of the promise. What promise in particular? Well, I think it's the promise that God made to Abraham. The key promise to Abraham. Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families, all the peoples, the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. We are inheritors of that promise. We are now those through whom the promise is still being worked out. In Genesis 19, God adds this to his promise to Abraham. In your seed, in your offspring... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Galatians, Paul says, that wasn't to a group of people. That was to one person, Jesus. Capital S. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And so the New Testament tells us this, Galatians 3. If you belong to Jesus, to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed, as according to the promise. Romans 8, 16 to 17. We are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. All of this is true because we are in Christ Jesus, in Messiah Jesus. It's all in him. Let me say again. We have everything in him and nothing without him. You can't have stuff, you can't have blessing, you can't have favour, you can't inherit promises unless it's in Jesus. It is Jesus who is the seed or heir of Abraham, heir of the world, heir of all things, and we in him are co-heirs. You can go through the Bible and see many great promises. They are the promises and inheritances of God to us only because we are in Jesus and co-heirs with him. What belongs to him is ours when we belong to him. And all of this is through the gospel. It's only through accepting and believing the good news of Jesus Messiah that this becomes true for us, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You can't write your own deal, negotiate your own treaty with the Most High. 
You know, the Brexit thing is about, oh, we'll go make trade agreements with all the rest of the world. Listen, you can't make your own private agreement with God. He set out a deal for every single one of us, whether a Jew or a Gentile. You must believe in Jesus' son. He sent his son to the cross. He raised him from the dead. And he now commands, doesn't recommend, doesn't suggest, he commands all nations to trust and obey his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news, and it's the only deal on offer. Not good works, not any other kind of faith. Oh, this kind of faith will do it. No, it won't. God says, only faith in my son. That's the presentation of the gospel, by the way. What was once hidden from us, was kept from us, is now revealed to us. It's in Jesus. It's as through faith, through trusting him. Gentiles, believing, joined the Israel of God in Jesus. Believing Jews and Gentiles are one in him. We'll come back to that again. Paul was graciously and powerfully called and equipped by the Lord to declare this gospel to the Gentile world. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable, I have to say that slowly, riches of the Messiah, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom, think of a diamond, multifaceted wisdom may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. The gospel must be preached among the nations. Think of this for a moment. In the prophets, in Isaiah, it was said of the people of Israel, I call you to be a light to the nations. Then in Matthew, you've got Jesus saying to the church, to his people, you are the light of the world. That's not, a discontinu- that's not discontinuity, that's continuity. He's saying everybody who trusts me and belongs to me is part of this, being a light to the nations. Gentiles are offered the incalculable riches of the Messiah. The mystery is revealed, it must be boldly proclaimed. God's wisdom must be made known. Through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Now, that's the second time in Ephesians we come across the heavenly places. There's a Greek word for it. We'll come to it later in the book. But people think, oh, the demons are going to see God's wisdom. Demons don't live in heaven. And besides which, they will not be impressed by God's wisdom. They'll hate him for it. This verse is talking about angelic authorities. Most sensible commentators say Paul Peter says that the things of redemption, the things that God is doing for his people, uh, angels desire to look into. They're, they're amazed by it. They're in awe of it. You know, Jesus became a man. What? Run that by me again. And he went to a cross. What? You know, angels are amazed by this multifaceted wisdom of God. And he's demonstrating his wisdom through the church. So the thing is this, the idea is that the heavenly host are going, what is he doing there? Did you see that one? The amazing grace and wisdom of God. This was his eternal purpose. You know, there's a form of a doctrine called dispensationalism. I need to speak more clearly and enunciate like a TV presenter. Um, don't they speak nicely on TV? Especially the newscasters, you know. Um, 
The argument that came up in the 1830s and is still in a lot of Bibles, including the Schofield Reference Bible, if you go on to those, is God had plan A, which was that Jesus would come to the Jewish people and he'd set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and he'd reign over, and then the, then the gospel of Jesus, you know, would go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, you know, in a, in a national kind of geographic kind of way. But the Jewish people rejected him, so plan B was, we'll do it this way then. No. No. God's purpose was always God's purpose. It was eternally God's purpose. There was no plan A, plan B. The way it happened was the way God had always determined it would be. Messiah would be rejected and crucified, but he would bear on the cross the sins of the whole world. And this good news of Jesus, the crucified, resurrected Messiah, would go to all the nations. That was always God's purpose. It wasn't a change of direction. There are two practical applications of what we've read so far. So far, the first one is this: in Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. We are to be bold and confident in our faith. In particular, in coming to God through the Lord Jesus to ask and to receive His help, His favour, His healing, courage, wisdom. What is it you need? Come and ask and receive it. We read elsewhere about this boldness and confidence in Hebrews. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. I like that word help. Something practical about it. It's not just sympathy. It's not just compassion even. It's help. Jesus felt compassion for people and did what? Went, there, there. He healed them. Compassion Grace in God is always delivering help. Not just, not just feeling with you. Jesus feels with us. That's wonderful. We read that in Hebrews as well. But he helps us. He helps us. So we're to hold the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So there, boldness and confident access. Boldness and confident access. Hebrews says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in time of trouble. Anybody had a time of trouble recently? I have. Do you need the help of God? Yeah, you just know more than you need the help of God. You actually need the help of God all the time just as much. It's just you're more aware of it then. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul urges his readers not to be discouraged because he's in prison. We often handle the suffering of other people very badly. We start rumouring about them. Well, what did they do? They must have done something. That's exactly what Job's so-called friends did with Job. Paul is suffering for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus, and he doesn't want anybody's pity. He's content. He's at peace. He's resting in the grace of God. He's actually writing scripture (laughs) under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't be discouraged for, for me. I've heard stories of people in uh, Eastern Europe, in China, released from prison. They go back to their, their, their home in prison for the gospel, yes? That's what I mean. Or in Iran, more recently. They re- finally, they're released and they've been mistreated very badly and so on. And people, people feel sorry for them. They say, oh, don't feel sorry for me. The Lord was with me in prison. I had a precious time with him. How about this for a story? 
Some people were arrested in China. This was some years ago for the gospel. Arrested in China, taken to prison, roughed up and all of it. Church are praying. They come back to the church and they find them a bit like Peter. They come in the prayer meeting, they're praying. And they tell their story. And everybody in the room is crying. And there's a Western missionary there. And he says, oh, they're all crying. They feel sorry for these guys who've just been let out of prison. He said, no, they're ashamed that they didn't suffer for Jesus. We need to get our heads around this suffering for the gospel thing. I'm off my story here. Um, okay. Let's go into the prayer of Paul. Paul prays now a powerful prayer. Okay? It's kind of like twice over. He says it once and he says it again. It's really, really the same prayer. It's just phrased in two different ways. Paul's powerful prayer. Let's go to his prayer. I need to move on. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I'm going to pick through this kind of bit by bit with you. The general Jewish tradition of praying was this. To stand, to raise your hands, and to lift your eyes. Eyes open to heaven. That was the traditional way of praying as a Jewish person, particularly a Jewish man. And Jesus even mentions in his teaching, when you stand and pray. Now that, that's, that's very different from the way most of us pray. You know? If you, if, you, if, we, if you look for an image on the internet of prayer, it's usually... It's the clasped hands, the closed eyes, the head down. You know? But the Jewish tradition of prayer was, was that. Eyes up to heaven. But when you're in great need and pushed to great humility, you kneel and bow. Or when you are in awe of the greatness of the person in whose presence you are, you also might kneel as before a great king. People knelt to pray. And who preeminently knelt to pray? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He knelt and bowed. And and wrestled in prayer. I'm time to go into it now. Sweat, drops of blood. Angels came and strengthened him. What did that look like? Paul is so intense about what he wants to pray for his friends that he kneels down to do it. Just a thought, just a thought. When was the last time you felt something so deeply that you were willing to pray to kneel it? Sorry, kneel to pray it. That's what I meant to say. Oh, I'll just pray for this and I'll pray for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want to pray for it's a heartfelt thing. And the family there is more than our family, you know, mum and dad and two and a half kids, whatever. Uh, the family there means body descended from one father. It's the family of God, the family of faith. And some of them are now in heaven. We can name them Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Yeah? They're in heaven. They are with the Lord. Other of us aren't. We're here. All right? Today. But we are the same family. With the same Father. We're, we're, we're saints with the saints. Those are our friends. Those are our compatriots. 
our brothers, our friends, our sisters. So here's the first request. And the second is very much like it. I pray, which means to ask. Um, Back when the Bible was translated, King James Version, early versions, to pray in Old English, older English, simply means to ask. All right? But we, we've kind of, oh no, we can pray and not ask. Well, I don't think you can pray and ask. <laughs> to pray is to ask. That's, that's the way it works in English, folks. You know? And actually, if I want to bore you with the Greek, the Greek word there means ask. Very simply. I ask that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. He's talking about his riches in Christ, yes? According to the riches of his glory, not, not just a little bit, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. That he may grant you from his glorious resources, not according to our need, actually. God doesn't measure us and then say, This is how much you need, that's all you're going to get. He measures his great resources. You know, we used to have a way in charismatic circles some decades ago of praying just prayers. Lord, would you just do this and just do that? And I, 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 never, I never, could never get into that. It's like, why, why do you want to pray a small prayer? And we'll come back to that in Ephesians 3.20. Why do you want to pray a small prayer? You just want God to do that and that's enough and I don't want to bother you with anything else. God never wants to give us just this bit. Like, you know, like someone carving the Sunday roast and saying, there you are, is that enough for you? Meaning, I'm not going to give you any more. God gives us and helps us according to his resources, which are infinite. That's how, why Paul uses the word riches here. It doesn't, it's not so we start thinking about money and possessions. When God has been incredibly generous to us, he hasn't diminished or depleted his resources one bit. He has no less to give to us again and again and again. And it's to be strengthened with power. Uh, now people see that strength with power. Oh, right, here we go. Works of power, signs and wonders and miracles. Not straight away. Maybe down the line, but that is not what the person, what this verse is saying. It's saying, strengthened with power by the entrance of his spirit into your inner man. That's a good translation from Victorian times. This is spiritual power, which is very literally the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. That you may be strengthened through the presence, the entrance of the Holy Spirit into your inner man. Now, next bit we're going to look at talks about the heart. It's the same thing. It's talking about the core of your being. You know, not this physical cardiac thing. The very core of your being. The very depths of your soul, you might say. Same kind of language. You know, there's an inner man and an outer man and you put a face on the outer man and you put pretense on the outer man and, and, and you want people to think about you in a certain way. But there's something in here which is you. The Holy Spirit entering into you and powerfully changing you and powerfully equipping you. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. So what? So that I do works? No, no. Those come. But the first thing is, so Christ will make his home in your hearts. 
as you trust in him. Christ will make your home, his home in your heart. There are two ways in which we generally misunderstand this. One is the funeral service. Well, we know that John has died, but we all take away John in our hearts today. Yeah? We kind of a fond remembrance of somebody. There, there are the forms of Christianity that treat Jesus as being, you know, great man, good teacher, lovely, lovely fella. You know, it'd be nice if he was around today, but we're just remembering him. And they talk about that as carrying, you know, carrying someone in your heart. It's just a memory. It's just a story. The other one is, is, is to kind of have a secret place. You have a secret place and you kind of dip in and out of that. But real life goes on out here, but the secret place kind of thing is over there. People have written books about the secret place. About, some of them are okay and some of them are just too weird. So it's hard to judge, really. By the, by the book, by the cover, about what they're meaning by that. Give me an example of that. Some people in some religions, Catholic religion, will have a shrine in the corner of the home. You know? For a Hindu, it would be Vishnu or whatever. For a Catholic, it might be a cross, a crucifix, a picture of the Virgin Mary, all of that kind of stuff. And, and so you, you come away from real life, you know, and all the rest of you have been doing, and you come and have your little bit of religious ritual by the shrine. Right? That is not having Jesus living in your heart. That you have these little religious moments when you, when you ignore real life and you deal with the religious thing and then you go back to real life again. If Jesus lives in your heart, all of life gets changed. All of life gets changed. Because he's gone to the very core of your being to change the whole of you and the whole of your life. And by the way, if we're going to take the presence and power of the Lord Jesus into our family, our workplace, our community, then we need to have him living in us and filling us. Otherwise, we're only taking the story. We're not taking him. You know, years and years ago, I mean, thank, thank God for Billy Graham. He's uh, gone to be with the Lord and he was buried on Friday. But Lots of evangelists have used the phrase, invite the Lord Jesus into your heart. But this scripture here is writing to Christians and saying, we need to have the Lord Jesus living in our heart. It was never, never meant to be a, a gospel text to challenge unbelievers. In the same way, we use Revelation 3 verse 20. You know, you remember that one? Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Who was that written to? It was written to a local church. In fact, it was the church at Laodicea who were, who were cold-hearted and so on. Jesus says, if any one of you, no matter what the church is like, if any one of you will open the door of your heart, I'll come in. I'll have, I'll have communion with you. I'll, I'll, I'll have, you know, not just bread and wine. He'll have a meal with us and he'll converse with us. That's not an invitation to, to be converted. That's an invitation to get, to, to, to get into connection with Jesus. To be open to his presence. If Jesus lives in our hearts, the very core of our beings, then here's one point for you. We are never without him. You can't leave him behind because he's with you. One of the Psalms talks about that. If, wherever I go, you're with me. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're with me there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're with me there. Yeah. Stephen 
preaching in Acts 6 and 7, 7 particularly, it says, God doesn't live in houses. <laughs> God doesn't live in houses. He doesn't live in buildings. Do you know there are three things in Scripture which, which are the home, the, 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 the habitation of God? One is the highest heavens, where the heavenly hosts are, and cherubim and seraphim serve him and so on, the throne room of God. Another one is a local community. He lives in the fellowship of his saints, the community of his saints. And he lives in a humble heart. Those are the places God makes his home. So if God, Jesus lives in you, you are, he's with you all the time. Yeah. And then if Jesus lives in our hearts and the core of our beings, then like the song said, songs said earlier, we are being led and ruled by him. What do we sing? Lord, reign in me, reign in your power over all my dreams in my darkest hour. You're the Lord of all I am, so won't you reign in me again. That could have been written reflecting on these verses in Ephesians. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not just as a conversion experience, but as a continuing way of life. Jesus is not unseen, unheard, inactive, hidden away somewhere within our hearts, that little kind of secret place thinking thing. That's not the idea at all. He rules in us and instructs us and equips us from the very core of our beings. And he does so, of course, by and through the Holy Spirit. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is with us, within us. He speaks, he motivates, he directs, he corrects. And it's how? Through faith. Not any kind of faith, it's faith in him, in Jesus. Through our trusting him, calling on him, defending and relying on him, obeying him. And Jesus said, John 14, we'll look at it in a minute, that our experience of knowing him being with us depends upon our, obey, our obeying him and remaining in him. So we're to live with constant communication and communion with the Lord. And he spoke about that a lot in the Gospels. Here's just a few scriptures to remind you. The teaching of Jesus. And that day you'll know that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I am in you. Not in the world to come. No. He's talking about when the Holy Spirit has come. When I'm raised from the dead and I send the Holy Spirit, you will know these things. They'll be a reality to you. That he is in the Father, the Father's in him, and he is in us. Today. Now. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So again, that is not an appeal to people to be converted. That's an instruction to us that we need to live with this reality. We should know this. Yeah, that's, that, that's the way I live. We will come to him and make our home with me, with him. And in John 15, using the analogy of, of a vine with branches, he says, remain in me. And I in you. And then he prays. The wonderful prayer of John 17. I said Paul's was a powerful prayer, but John 17, the prayer of Jesus, often really just chews me up, breaks my heart. Jesus prays, I am in them. And you, Father, are in me. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he's, a, he's praying ahead of time what the reality will be when he's accomplished all he's going to accomplish. And when he sends the Holy Spirit to his people. They will live with this reality 
that Jesus is in us and God is in Jesus. I said to Teddy whether we could include this because I, I might stop me preaching on it and I shouldn't, I haven't got time. Colossians 1.27 God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery same mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. See when someone says why do you think you're going to heaven then? You might, you might talk about well I made this decision I did this and became a Christian. You've missed the point. It's that Jesus lives in you and his life is in you that you know you belong to him. It's not what you did, it's what he has done. He's come to live in you. Let's move on to the second part of Paul's prayer. I pray, I ask, that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, whose love is that's the love of God, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, we're talking about the saints, those in heaven, those on earth, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Rooted and grounded in love. Interestingly, Paul confuses things there a bit. He gives an agricultural term and an architectural term. Rooted is a tree. Grounded is, an, is a building found, which has foundations. They're dug into the soil. You see, we are to be those who are rooted in the love of God. We build down and into and onto the love of God. Not just any kind of love, it's his love. When it says that you may be strong enough to grasp together with all the saints. To grasp. You see, this is not just intellectual assessment. Yeah, I know that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. God doesn't need your agreement. Yeah? He doesn't need to, need to go, yeah I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I believe that's true. He wants you to act upon it. To build your life on it. You can know a truth and yet experience almost nothing of that truth. God wants us to receive from him and this knowing is to grasp it, to take hold of it, to put it into practice, to put it into action. The whole family of God. By the way, Christianity is not a solo pursuit. There are things we work at together. When you said love one another, you can sit in your room and claim to love everybody. When you start to see a few faces, you might find out it's not so easy. Christianity is worked out in community, in fellowship, togetherness. And then you get into this phrase here, and it, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? The breadth and length, or length and width, whichever way around, and height and depth of God's love. So I'm going to give you a little task for a moment. I'm not into visualizing. I believe that when they talk about faith visualizes things, I don't accept that teaching. I don't see it in Scripture. But I want you to imagine, if you possibly can, that right now you are in the center of the universe. For some of you, you think like that anyway, but never mind. Um, <laughs> whoa! So you're in the center of the universe. And what's above you? Infinite space. All the way up there. What's beneath your feet? Infinite space. All the way going that way. What's on your right hand side? The same? What's on that side? The same. Wow. That cosmos 
is God's creation. And in fact, those four dimensions which I've just described are in the beginning of it. Because actually, if you take every degree of distance, that's, that's every angle on every plane all the way around you, all the way around you, 360 degrees, right the way, the whole of your area is infinite space. God is infinite. Therefore, every one of his attributes is infinite. The cosmos is just an illustration of God himself. It's a picture, if we get the message. God is infinite in his wisdom. There's no limit to it. God is infinite in his love. There is no limit to it. There is no measurement to it. That's the point here. Breadth and length and height and depth. We're talking about the infinite love of the infinite God. What does vastness provoke in us? Think of a night sky full of stars. Or when you get up on a high mountain, you see the view. It literally takes your breath away, doesn't it? No wonder we have this expression, wow. It's like, wow. It, when our mouth finally opens, that's what comes out, this kind of release of, release, release of, of air from our lungs. <gasps> oh, wow. It's beyond words. I tell you what is missing from many of us, from many of, most of the Western church, I would say, awe. It doesn't help that the Americans have made awesome to mean something that means the same as it's rather, it's rather quite interesting, really, or it's, it's quite pretty, or it's... It's quite attractive. It's awesome. No, no, no. There's only one thing that's really awesome. God. That is the measure of God's love for his children. It's infinite. It's vast. It's, it's as great as God himself. Psalm 103, David wrote, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And David didn't understand dimensions the way we understand dimensions today, which is why I just put you in the middle of the cosmos. God is great and his love is great. How great is your love towards those who fear him? And then Paul adds this, to know the love of Jesus, to know Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. You see, God's love is the love of Jesus. God loves us through Jesus. Sending him to the cross, raising him from the dead, exalting him to be our king and saviour. God's love is compassion leading to action. God doesn't just feel sorry for us. He gave his son for us to bring us freedom and forgiveness. The love of God, the love of Jesus is our soil to grow in, our bedrock to build on. We're to be without any doubt of the love of God for us. Romans 8, I can't go there, we haven't got time particularly, says it well, doesn't it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. It comes to you through Jesus. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may know the love of God through Jesus. That you may be able to build a whole life resting securely on the love of God. 
The love which not only comes and forgives you for getting it wrong, it empowers you to start to live right. That's grace. The help of the great God of power. I didn't mention his, in, his infinite in power, did I? That's why he can help us. If he only had love but no power, he'd feel sorry for us, but that would be it. But he's infinite in power, in authority. And if he speaks his word, it'll change. And then there's this amazing phrase here. Oh, by the way, that love surpasses knowledge. All right? And that, that is intellect. That is intellect. I'm so glad that people who haven't got, you know, A-levels and degrees and whatever else can be thoroughgoing Christians. Right? It's not about intellect and education because if God gets a hold of your heart and you know the love of God, you're going you're gonna to be a pretty good Christian. <laughs> whether, you could, whether you've got all the cleverness or not. And, yeah. and in fact, some of us who've got you know, some skills and kind of words, we have to come back to basics again and again. And I'm just so glad that I'm, on a number of occasions, well, more than a few in my life, God has reduced me again to be just a... a, a, a a, a blubbing wreck of a man who just knows in that moment God absolutely loves me. Then he uses this expression that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What? Run out by me again. Hang on, God is length, breadth, depth, height, infinite. Wow, great. Awesome, and, and you now you pray, Paul, what are you talking about? That we would be filled with all fullness of God? Uh, well, let's unpick it, because this is not the only place that Paul talks about fullness. And I think when you put them together, it begins to make sense. Look at this in Ephesians 1. The body of Christ, the church, is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus fills the church with his presence. Then in Ephesians 4, we'll come to that in a few weeks' time. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, growing into mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. We, we, me- we measure up towards his measure. Now, he's complete. He's full. There's no lack. There's, there's, no, there's no shortfall in Jesus to utterly, completely glorify God. But we are, we are being, we're coming up towards that. We're being raised towards that. In 1 Colossians 1.19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Note this is in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, though a man, was yet fully, totally God. He was no less God than God the Father or the Holy Spirit, though he was a man. Then Jesus did not give up being God. There's a kind of idea about he set aside his deity. No, he didn't. He was God in flesh. He didn't give up one bit of being God. He just didn't exercise his rights as God. And then Colossians 2. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, if he didn't get it the first time. Jesus is totally, fully God. Then in John 16, John 1 16, we've received grace after grace from his, from the Christ's fullness. Let me put those together in this way. 
The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, the God-man. So that if you see and you know Jesus, you truly see and know God. There's no, you don't need to go somewhere else. You know God in Christ. You don't need a second opinion or, or another witness. Jesus tells you all you can possibly know about God. This fullness of Jesus fills his church, his body, and we are to grow up to that measure. So actually, in Ephesians 3.19, Jesus is called the fullness of God. And one version of my shell says this, so that you may be filled even to the measure of the fullness of God, even to the measure of Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? How filled? Full. How filled with the Holy Spirit does he want you to be and us to be? Full. As much as we can take you might say. That you may be filled to the measure of Jesus, the fullness of God. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Paul has prayed one of his great prayers for the Ephesians, and then in typical Hebrew fashion, he blesses God. But that's the last two verses for next week, to close the day. One of the, rest, one of the things that I've wrestled with going through Ephesians 3 so far this, this time around was that you know, it doesn't sound very practical. You know, it's like, where's the to-do in it? Well, I have to tell you that the to-do section of Ephesians starts from chapter 4, verse 17 onwards, and, and then it really kicks in, and you won't like all it says, to be honest with you. But for now, let me give you not any of the detail, but the big picture. See, Ephesians 4, 1 says, Therefore I, the prison of the Lord, urge you, challenge you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Because you know these things that you're called by the grace of God, by his eternal purpose to be added to Jesus and to have Jesus live in you and to know this, this, this immensity of God's love focused into your being, that the Holy Spirit should strengthen your inner man so you may grasp how much he loves you and, and that you'll be strengthened so that Jesus lives in your hearts through faith. Or if you know all of that, then life is going to change. Well, how much? Totally. I've said before, Jesus did not come to improve our life, but to replace our life. We as Christians are not called to live an old life patched up. We're called to live a new life and the old life is dead. We need to know that we're loved by God and that we have Jesus living and reigning in our hearts. So we live life to the full. So we don't live underrate, under par, underperforming, under the weather, under the circumstances. In fact, under nothing at all other than the rule of our loving master. Ruled and led by Christ living in our hearts. What is this about? It's about life. And where is the real life? In Jesus. That's the real deal. See, that's the problem with that mentality. But I do real life over here, then I go and have my religious moment. Jesus takes claim to all of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The rest isn't life. It's fake. It's fading. It's wasteful. This is where this letter is going. 
to the spirit-filled life in Ephesians 5 and 6, which includes marriage and family and workplace and finances and worship and witness and community together as the Church of Christ. One life and all of that life, that is what it is to have Jesus living and reigning in our hearts. In fact, that's a good definition of holiness. One whole unified life that's lived by God's grace for God's glory. And it starts with this, with knowing the truth, with seeing, with understanding. If you do not see and understand why you exist and the greatness of God's love for you and the hope to which he has called you in and through Jesus, you will fritter your life away. But if Jesus in you is, and I'm daring to preach it in a minute, Colossians 1.27, if Jesus in you is the hope of glory, you will spend your days eager to discover what he has for you, what he's going to show you, what he's given and give you to do, what he's going to... What truth is going to open up to you? Because you're living in hope. Today is not the finished deal. There's another one coming. That's what it is to live in hope. Jesus is not for religious moments or fond remembrance. He's to live and reign in our hearts and change the whole of our lives. I come back again to that song. Over all the earth you reign on high. Every mountain stream, every sunset sky. But my one request, Lord, my only aim is that you reign in me again. Second verse, over every thought, over every word. May my life reflect the beauty of my Lord. Because you mean more to me than any earthly thing. So won't you reign in me again? Lord, reign in me. In fact, let's sing that, shall we? Lord, reign in me. Reign in your power over all my dreams. In my darkest hour, you are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me? Lord, reign in me, reign in your power over all my dreams. In my darkest hour, you are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me again? Let's make it our prayer. shown you in the scriptures Ephesians and Revelation when the Lord Jesus calls to us that he wants to reign in our hearts he's not talking to those who are not your believers he's talking to us because when he's at the core of everything everything begins to come toward him and when he isn't there's no purpose in it there's no wisdom in it There's no hope in it. Therefore, I'm inviting you this morning to do just that. To again open your being, open your heart to the Lord Jesus and say, reign in me, Lord. Not in a little secret place thing in my heart, but the whole business.
from the core, overwhelming my being, the knowledge that I am yours, that I am loved, that I have significance and purpose because I am your child. That will reshape life, the whole of life. Let's take a moment together to do that.